right, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Mike Sauter. I'm here with my co-host, guest, not guest, but friend, Michael Martin. And this is the Reimagine uh, podcast. This is the first, this is an introduction, and we welcome all of you. Uh, Michael Martin, tell, uh, tell our friends out there uh, kind of about who you are and your bio and uh, maybe how this came about even for you. Yeah, well... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. That's the big philosophical question, right? Who am I? Yeah. Where'd you come from? But, uh, you know, so I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, I mean, there's so many different Michael Martins out there. I mean, me, meaning me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started off, I mean, I grew up in Detroit, started off very young as a musician. I started playing bars when I was 13. <laughs> Okay. I didn't tell my mom. <laughs> I said I was spending the night at my friend's house. Um, what instruments do you play, or just? I played well. Then I played guitar. Now I play guitar and mandolin, little piano, okay. harmonica, probably banjo a little. Uh, so, so I so that's how I my introduction to the world. And, and if I look back through through my history, uh, there are a couple threads that. Are consistent all the way through since, since i you know i was a musician working professionally till i was about 26 and i left the business because it's toxic um but the, the threads are music or the arts poetry um gardening or the world of nature we have that in common and god and when i was a kid i was very you know i, I don't know pious or devout is the right word but i was really into <laughs> i was really into questions of god even as a, as a elementary school kid huh. um and i wanted to be a priest at one point uh but they wouldn't have me <laughs> okay how did that uh delve into that a little bit uh well so i was supposed to go to the seminary or a junior seminary i was investigated but my parents wouldn't pay for me to go Okay. Uh, and I remember talking to uh, this our our parish priest and telling him, and he said, and he was like, you know, I, this guy I really admired and looked up to, and he said, well, you better talk to the other priest about that. And the reason being is he left the priesthood. Right okay, that. that guy, that guy probably had it in the works that he was already leaving. Is that and what he probably? Okay. Yeah, he absolutely yeah. did. <laughs> he wasn't the greatest representative. Yeah. And, and well, of course, and he was leaving so he could get married. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so, so, uh, so those things all, you know, led along the ways to investigating all kinds of, uh, you know, paths to God. Mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, I kind of left the Catholic church at 18 and wandered around for a while and wandered back i don't know it was 30 32 something like that and uh and it, you know i felt the the impetus to bloom where i was planted you know what i mean i do and but <laughs> but that's that and that was like 25 years ago or so um maybe get longer 27 yeah. um and and in the interim so i didn't start college till i was 26 when i left the music business uh 
ended up with a PhD in English literature. And I did my dissertation on uh, religious writing in post-Reformation England. Right. So kind of Protestant mysticism. Uh, <clears throat> and those things led me, I mean, actually my entire life led me to sophiology, which... Um, keyword there, keyword. I had first, which I had first heard about, I don't know, it was 23 or something. I read a uh, biography of Vladimir Soloviev. And uh, it's really intrigued. And what happened is over the years, it was always on the radar, but I didn't really penetrate it until I started to, to you know, you just, it was never a pro, pro plan or a project, but I, I started to, uh, I was, well, I was working on my dissertation, for instance. So, and uh, because I, I was doing uh, post-Reformation mysticism, you can't do that without uh, contending with the, the writing of Jakob Burma. Right. Who had such a German huge shoemaker. influence in, in English yeah. religious writing. Yeah. yeah, German German non-academic shoemaker. Some people say my last uh, and, name uh, Sauter is shoemaker in German too. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe some uh, blood so, lineage there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because there's me that's a better, it's it's a more honest way to make a living. He didn't he didn't uh, show up on uh on uh whatever that genealogy thing, everybody ancestry.com. He didn't show up as one of my ancestors. Up, it would be cool though, right? It would be cool. Yeah. But but he's he's certainly one of my he's my uh my spiritual DNA. Yeah. And and it was so so I had to come to terms with his writing when I was doing that. And because that only that way could I understand uh Thomas and Henry Vaughn, for instance, or Jane Led, uh who who were all influenced by by him. Yeah. And and I realized, you know, oh this is this is what I remember reading Henry Vaughn and his Henry Vaughn's poetry. Nature, God, and the Bible and the self are all kind of intertwined. I said, Oh, this is what I've been doing for all these years. I finally had, you know, a tribe. I finally had a context. So tribe, I like it. So, so that, that so that's you know, I wrote that book, I don't know how many years ago? Seven, eight years ago? Ten years it's, ago I wrote it. It's interesting, you know, because you uh an area of overlap. We've known each other. Going back to a review I wrote of a book uh, that you wrote on sociology. What was the title of that one again? The first one. Submerged Reality. Yeah, Submerged Reality. That uh, we found ourselves in contact through that review and a common friend, Elias Krim. But the uh, what I didn't know, and so we've kept in touch over the years, what I didn't know we might have had in common is that um, similarly, uh, not as much of a gardening background as you, although right now gardening is a huge part of my life. I uh, kind of grew up in the suburbs, and um, I think when I graduated from college, you know, I went to less than one third of my classes total. Uh, technically, a history major. My grades were fine, but uh, I was lost after college. I was working in a factory making safes on the third shift, and I think that's where I kind of, wow. as they say about the prodigal son, he came to himself, right, uh -huh. down in the pigsty. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> I, I had an Irish grandmother who always, my middle name is uh, Joseph, called me Bishop Joe. Just, you know, in the Irish family, uh -huh. somebody's going to be targeted, free or not, for possibly <laughs> going into the clergy. Yeah. And uh, if I had, if I was young, I don't know, church was church, right? I, I would describe myself as always fidgety in church. 
So it wasn't fun for me, but I had a couple of experiences. One was a Vietnamese wedding. My mom was um, working with what they called the boat people back in the uh, early 80s. Yeah. And uh, I just had to be an altar server. And something was really in this, it was love was in the air. And I was in church and it was on a Saturday when I didn't want to be there. It wasn't a Sunday and something really overcame me. And then, uh, I don't know, nothing really with the religious impulse until uh, those years after college when I was working, making safes. And then I just, my mom threw in front of me a church bulletin that showed a grad program in a former seminary. And I was, I was really unnerved by it um, and uh, that she would do that. And yet I, I started taking classes. And then one of my first classes, this is the thing we have in common. I took a class on mysticism with a really eclectic professor. And uh, I don't know why, but I was drawn to the name Yaakov Berma. Hmm. Um, so I wrote my first paper in grad school on his take on the Mary and Martha story, where he kind of praises Mary, you know, paradoxically wow. for a mystic, yeah. he was going to praise Mary. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then I've worked in various ministries in the Catholic church. I took that degree. I, at, at first I dropped out for a cool 10 years, uh, but I was unemployed and somehow I, I put a wrap on a, a small graduate degree. And I've done everything from campus ministry as to a layman running a local parish. I worked for a number of years over at a year by local Trappist monastery. But um, I think it was from Burma. And again, the name Solovia, people will hear that here. And then, uh, you know, I never tackled fully. I took a class on Thomas Aquinas, but I never tackled something like the Summa. But I did tackle Sergius Bulgakov's, Bulgakov's, mm -hmm. his major and minor trilogy, right? That was yeah. that was where I was going to, you know, and that's been such an anchor for me. So again, mm -hmm. sophiology, how would you, how would you define sophiology? Yeah. So, well, for me, and in, it's uh, and I kind of resist <laughs> definitions because people get stuck on them so much. But for me, it there, there are, I guess, two ways to look at it. Um, one is there's kind of a theoretical sociology, which you find in Bulgakov. Um, and he was trying to turn it, I think, into a kind of a systematic theology as much as as much as possible which I don't yeah think with is, the blessings and curses right <clears throat> yeah i don't think it's possible yeah. ultimately but i but hey he did a great job of of at least uh, sketching the landscape um so there's that kind of thing and you see that also in you see it in burma you see it in the philadelphians who followed him very very carefully and, mm -hmm. and devotedly um but there's another side of it which um, you see a little, I guess you, you would probably see traces of it in Romanticism, in Goethe. Oh, sure. In, uh, in Rudolf Steiner, where, where it's more of a phenomenological approach, where, you know, in Goethe's uh, phenomenology, um, in beholding phenomena, you, um, you don't impose preconceptions or judgment you know judgments or anything is is for as long as possible you know you try not to uh, assume you know what it is and let the phenomena speak and i think this I, I think this also happened to bulgakov this is where i think the energy of his writing comes from is is experiential so you have this experience of uh, you, you could call it the light of the first day penetrating or shining through the light of the fourth day i like that so uh, through creation and and that goes right back to proverbs 8 mm -hmm. with when 
when wisdom uh, accompanies God at the creation. Yeah. You know, so you, you, you participate in that. So you, but that's, you don't get that understanding through Bulgakov necessarily, because he, he's speaking in theological language, philosophical language, though he does. I mean, he talks a, a lot about Sophia and, and we know he had yeah. like, you know, that <clears throat> mystical experience yeah. in front of the Sistine Madonna. Right. And that's the uh, thing is, yeah. you, you know, what his is born from experience. Sure. But his audience, you know, he's writing for other theologians. Mm-hmm. So he had to, he was trying to use a language that they could relate to. <laughs> we both know he didn't fully escape those no. other theologians, right? And he didn't care either. <laughs> no, no, no. He got censored. He got censored. Uh, fascinating. You know, the, uh, uh, I, as you know, I do a lot of, not a lot, I'd get, I, I, when occasional pieces, whenever the spirit moves me, I write, and I probably thwapped most of those articles up at a, a website dedicated to Wendell Berry in some way, shape, or form called Front Porch Republic, and when I adjunct at a local college, SUNY Geneseo in upstate New York, I've taught humanities, Western humanities, and I also teach a writing course on this Wendell Berry, but I had an article published this week there, and uh in the comment section, somebody asked me about sophiology. And just this morning, I wrote back to him. He said, does that have to do with uh, Vladimir Soloviev? And I go, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, it's like a fireworks display that put it back on the map. And then what mm-hmm. people have done with it, even again, since him, I, th- I think I heard myself saying, you know, the light shines through all creation. In one sense, for me, it's, it's um, you know, the logoi spermatikoi, that there's mm-hmm. call, almost like an entelechy. Like if you look at nature, so much has a purpose that God in matter, not dead matter. And that's the other thing. We're at, we're at war with the notion of dead matter. At some point, we're probably going to talk about my youngest son was saying, Dad, literally every female friend he has is fascinated by astrology. And, you know, I might qualify, like, how are they using that for good or bad? But I said, what do you think their major draw is? He goes, they're afraid of just endless, this notion that a dead space, right? And I think in that sense, whoa. You know, you and I would give an applause to that. So mm-hmm. whether it's outer space or the dirt we're farming in, or I think, well, you know, even these notions of uh, the political realm, the economic realm, uh, church or the cultural realm, these things have an entelechy and they need to find their true form. Um, and I think they're searching to find their true form and they need to be stewarded just like we might add a trellis to a tomato plant. We have to water it and we have to engage with it. And as some people even do talk with their plants. Right. So, um, so, you know, another way is everything churchy outside of church and outside of Sunday too. Right. Right. And that's kind of this, you know, and, and like you're saying, like your, your, your son and his friends are, are grasping for is there's gotta be more, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's got, there's gotta be meaning in the world that yeah. you can't, it can't be just confined to a social group you meet with on Sunday morning. Right. right. There's gotta be, the, the world must have meaning. It's got to, you know, and I, and we sense this, right. And, and you sense it through the arts or, or, you know, certainly through nature, you know, I'm a farmer, so I get it all the time. But on the other hand, you know, you, you get the sense of wonder, the, uh, the Sophianic that, that shines through the universe, but you also have to deal with the fallen aspects of nature. Right. Say a little bit so, more about that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, just in a very practical way as a farmer, you know, just dealing with insane weather. Yeah. 
or early frost or late frost or yeah, that kind of stuff on your tomatoes. Yeah. But that's, you know, but, and it's not, you know, cause you know, weather can be destructive. Yeah. We had last summer, we had these storms that came through and knocked us out of power for two weeks Yikes. and knocked all kinds of trees down all over the place. I couldn't, you couldn't drive for, for a couple of days because there were so many trees down. Wow. Um, so that, but, so that's fallenness, obviously. Yeah. Um, but you, but you also, you know, when that, that thing shines through, in fact, uh, Terrence Malick, the filmmaker, I think he's especially good on this because most of his films are about attending to that. And in fact, the last line of uh, his film, The Thin Red Line, is all things shining. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, and it's a film about Guadalcanal, right? Yeah. I think the so, opening scene with the natives <coughs> is just mm-hmm. so stunning. Yeah, yep. just so stunning. But, you uh, know, speaking of, of astrology, as you were a second ago, now, it's interesting that we, you know, post-Enlightenment Christians... You know, we we're kind of we feel that we're kind of closed off from all of these things that these these kids that your your, your son's friend. Well, are, we've are sold seeking. the farm. We've sold the farm, uh, lock, stock, and barrel to this kind of uh, a certain form of. <clears throat> I people always they want to qualify it because they're so nervous to call it like scientism. You know that we right. have to even when we want to have some carve some space, we're always still bowing in front of it, right? So right. sometimes I'll say for profit science, but I could just say science. You know that. Uh, when when science became hegemonic, that we're all, yeah. we're always so apologetic, even within the Catholic Church, to this notion, right? Right. Well, you know, and, and today I don't know when we're going to broadcast, but today is Good Friday. Absolutely. And, and always on Good Friday, I read uh, John Donne's poem, uh, "Good Friday, sixteen thirteen, riding westward," mm. and he opens it up with exactly this thing we're talking about. Here's here's the opening lines. Do it. Let let man's soul be a sphere, and then in this the intelligence that moves devotion is. And as the other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motions, lose their own in, in being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year their natural forms obey. So he's, he's <clears throat> what's great about Dunn is he makes, in Jean Val's phrase, he makes the the very near here mysterious yeah so he's changing you know he's trying to awaken our our perspective or or attention to where we are so he's speaking you know what what he's talking about when he says let man's soul be his fear well that's what in his time that's what they thought the planets were they thought the planets circled on on crystalline spheres right a bad notion so which was an in a lot you know and they thought the intelligence Intelligences were angels who were the souls of the planets. Mm-hmm. I, I still, <laughs> I think, still think it works for me. Something. It works for yeah. me. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and when he does this, you know, he lets let man's soul be a sphere. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and, and devotion is the intelligence that moves it. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of beautiful. But that kind of cosmology is, is not only is it lost to our, our day and age, but it's what people hunger for, yeah. especially young people. And I think, you, and I've, we talked about this before, I think uh, uh, you see people who are attracted to neo-paganism. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yep. 
They want to live in a world that has meaning in life. Yeah. Right. And the, the guess what? The church used to have that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny you know, that I mean, so much so much of our reaction, uh, especially you know, I guess if I think of my work in the Catholic Church, is we hear something like neo-paganism, <clears throat> and instead of asking somebody like, huh, being interested, right? Like, you know, the root interesse between mm-hmm. being you know, being interested in them and say, wow, tell me why that works for you. We just, all of us have these like knee-jerk reactions to just like to pound down on those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's why we're kind of, uh, we're definitely stuck in our tracks uh, completely, completely. And, uh, uh, you know, both of those, astrology or, or uh, neo-paganism, uh, all we have these knee-jerk reactions that have been handed on to us and we work, uh, we respond like automatons to these right. things. Don't and if you study the, the medieval church, or the early modern church, you know, <laughs> it, it would be, be pretty much indistinguishable from what we call neo-paganism. Yeah, right, right. It really would. I mean, you know, the, the way the, the church year was celebrated in those times. And the way uh, it needs to be celebrated again. And know, it does. Both of us would say, unless we can connect the church from the liturgical year to nature, it's going to die further than it's already dying. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let me and ask next, you, you know, mm-hmm. if we had maybe just uh, some more minutes today uh, because we're calling this podcast reimagine, you know, and I don't think maybe it can, that word can just carry on exactly what we were talking about, but I think a welcoming people uh, tell me why that word works for you, Michael. Well, it, this is how I met you (laughs) (laughs) when, uh, when you contacted me after you read this, the submerged reality, uh, we started this Facebook group called the Radical Catholic Reimagination of Everything. So much fun. Which was a project, you know, and we had that conference. And that's when you you, you came to the farm in 2016, yeah. it was. Can you believe oh, it? It was a blast. Um, and uh, that I think everything needs to be reimagined. Yeah. You know, even our, our, our relationship to, to the church or the, the church needs to be reimagined. My God. Um science needs to be reimagined education because all of these and we know i mean i think if i've learned anything from the last two years that that all these institutions are dead if not dying dead they're zombies you know what i mean yeah and 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 i knew i mean i think we all knew that that the moment was coming to reimagine all these things. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think the World Economic Forum thought so too. They're <laughs> trying to head it off at the pass, but yeah, yeah. But that that's that's where it lives for me. Yeah. I I, I think um, you know, as they say, the worst is the corruption of the best, you know. Optima, corruptio pessima. That mm-hmm. for me, uh reimagine works in two ways. One is again, actually, what you know, everything you're saying. We mentioned we're going to even reimagine cosmology and we have no problems, or at least I can speak for myself and I know you don't either, but we have no problems naming names with Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson and all these things. Oh, just saying it's wrong at every level. These types of false cosmologies Mm -hmm. are wrong. We're not just coming up with a poem. Um, But so the, um, you know, I always find with uh, the word speaks to me too, because if you talk about like the World Economic Forum, it, that's based on that type of reimagining, which is the actually the opposite. Is it's being fed, and I've got nothing against uh, your your friend and somebody I greatly admire, Stratford Caldicott. You know, could watch these Marvel this Marvel universe and all these movies and see something mm-hmm. neat in there, and I do too. But on the other hand, you know, I've got this big beef with so much of what goes by the name imagination 
both in video games and then in popular culture. Whereas, you know, if somebody's strong, we give a superhero uh, a lot of strength. And if somebody sees pretty well, we give a superhero powers where they can see really well. But uh, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a near miss for me. And when I say a near miss, it's actually a, a huge miss because imagination for me is this wild ability for me to kind of cease being me and to try and put myself into another person's place. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when we've confused those two things, like imagination as more of the same uh, versus imagination is imagining something completely different, you know, our common, uh, one of our heroes that the people will hear the name of a lot is Valentin Tomberg, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the type of imagination I'm thinking of, it really dovetails so well with his view of sin, which is me real, you shadow. You know, when I stub my toe, I secretly think it hurts me more than hurts you when you stub your toe. Mm-hmm. But to be liberated from the bondage of self and to realize, you know, that Mike Martin, Michael Martin exists in true living color, you know, that's imagination. And so I think, you know, in using this word we're taking a word that's out there it's not a it's not a word that people aren't using anymore and we're not trying to redefine it but we're trying to reclaim it right to reclaim right. it. Yeah. reclaim is a good, good good way to put it yeah um so you know uh I, I think you know we're kind of uh upward and onward as they say off and running um off and running yeah with this uh this podcast and we hope people you know spread the news um we'll be having uh Frequently, not every time, but frequently, we're going to be inviting on uh, uh, so many guests that we also have the great honor of calling friends mm-hmm. um, and coming when we talk about the radical reimagination of basically everything. Uh, we're going to have friends from the fields of farming, the friends from the field of economics, friends from the field. Oh, boy, whenever I've taught school uh, at college, uh, once a semester, I'll ask people um, you know, how many maybe it's in this case, young women. How many are thinking a lot about you know, having children more than maybe this degree they're getting in finance or something? And so we're going to talk about the domestic life. Um, what else do you think we're talking about? Well, the arts as well, right? Because Amen. and it's you know, and I for me, I mean, all these things you know, need to be grounded in the original sense of economy, yeah. in the house, in the home, right? And 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 that that's that's the way to I wouldn't say win culture, but but to not only reimagine but reestablish or reinvigorate culture because you know you've seen it it's we're we're more and more um, being transported into this kind of <laughs> demonic other world without our knowing it <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, and frogs boiled in water. Uh, yeah. yeah, and how do, how do, and how do we become reoriented to the real? Yeah, right. I think we got a good chance of pulling it off. Do you think so? I think so. All right, we'll see you next week, Michael Martin, and okay, I'm Mike brother. Sauter signing off for the Reimagined Podcast. We'll see you soon, everybody. Bye.